Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners, it's just me today. Today, I am going to be answering your emails. It's that time of year again when I go through all of my emails that I've received from all of you listeners, and I try to answer all of them. So this episode is probably going to be, I don't know, one or two hours, and I'm going to probably get to, I don't know, let's see if we can get to 10 or 20 different emails. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast, Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I am a therapist and a professor. This episode is just going to be for patrons of the podcast. So if you are not a patron of the podcast, this episode will end before the content begins. If you want to hear this episode and all the other patron-exclusive episodes, go to patreon.com and become a patron of our podcast, after which you will receive instructions on how to listen to this entire episode, the premium you know, episode and all the other premium ep- episodes. So go to Patreon and become a patron of the podcast. Do it now. <music> All right, welcome to the Patron Zone patrons. Thanks a lot. Uh, So let's read this first email. Anonymous patron. Hi, Kirk. Could you talk about anger and anger issues? Anger is an emotion that is very uncomfortable for me, whether it's me feeling it or it comes from others. My partner has always had occasional outbursts, but recently they are a lot more frequent and becoming worse. I worry that his family will eventually stop talking to him because of the things he says and sometimes even the things he breaks. It's confusing because he is a very nice guy 90% of the time, but when his rage takes over, it shows a completely different person and that scares me and others that are close to him. People who've never seen him that way wouldn't even believe that he's capable of that. I keep telling myself that it's good most of the time, so it's not a big deal. But then there's a part of me that's really worried it might get even worse. I know he's a good person who has gone through a lot, and I know I can't push him to get help, so I'm glad he's finally decided to talk to to someone, although he's still in the thinking about it stage. Is there something that can be resolved in, is this something that can be resolved in therapy or is, or is it just another personality trait that will always be there? Um, So let me chime in here. The answer to that question is probably both. It's uh, absolutely something that can be be worked on in therapy and um, his rage and anger uh, responses can definitely be reduced. Um, And it's probably a personality trait he's always going to have. Uh, it's hard for me to know, obviously, because I don't know him. I haven't treated him. But uh, the way you describe it, it sounds like um, it comes from a deep place that isn't likely to uh, completely disappear with therapy. So it's likely that his anger comes from two different places. One is fear and the other is hurt. So there's a lot of reasons why he might be afraid and there's a lot of reasons might, why he might be hurt. Uh, people are afraid of losing uh, their you know, people. So he might actually be deeply afraid of losing you, and uh, but he doesn't know how to express that fear and that um, insecurity, and so he gets angry. Uh, he might be afraid of being seen as a bad person, which will lead to a secondary consequence of people leaving him because he's a bad person, and that could make him very angry and rageful. He could be hurt by certain things that you've said or done um, inadvertently, and that could result in rage and anger. So 
in emotionally focused therapy, we call this secondary and primary emotions, the primary emotions being fear and hurt leading to a secondary emotion of anger. And so if he learns how to identify those feelings and communicate them, communicate them effectively, he will likely not rage anymore, but he has to trust people and he has to get help and he has to get out of the thinking about it stage and he has to be humble and he has to have self-compassion and he's going to have to process some of his traumas. Uh, I really hope that he does that for his benefit and everyone else around him because he deserves that. Um, there's also the issue of safety. I mean, you're talking about a situation, the, the way you're talking, it sounds like there's a possibility that you are in an, in an abusive relationship and that you're in danger of uh, being harmed physically. So uh, make sure that you talk with your therapist about that. I'm really glad you're in therapy. You know, the, the red flags that I'm hearing are that he breaks things. You know, it's one thing to get angry verbally. It's another thing to break things. And in my area, that's actually potentially a crime that is uh, assault in the fourth degree, I believe. And the uh, law is such that you, domestic violence or assault doesn't have to be, you don't actually have to touch the person or actually harm the other person's body to assault them. Uh, for example, a classic example is your partner is angry at you and picks up a chair and throws it against the wall in front of you. You're in the room and he picks up a chair and throws it against the wall. Well, by implication, that chair could be you and you are, uh, you know, rightfully and naturally so terrified and uh, maybe even traumatized by that, even though he didn't throw the chair at you. The implication is that it could have been you. And so that is a abusive act. And uh, you also say that he's a very nice guy 90% of the time, which I don't know if he's rageful the other 10%, but that's a lot of percentage points of anger. <laughs> so uh, it doesn't sound like a minor issue. So um, I, I, I would I would take it very seriously. I'm not saying you have to leave him, of course, but I'm saying that um, you deserve better. You know, you deserve not to have that kind of stuff in your life. Uh, you go on to say here, in my own therapy, I have realized that I keep the, the peace, which can be very exhausting and doesn't really allow me to be myself. I don't express anger well. I've had depression and also have occasionally self-injured because I didn't know what to do with my emotions. For some reason, my anger has always made others mad, so I think I've learned to keep it in. So chime in here. Yeah, good awareness. I'm glad in therapy you're learning that about yourself. Uh, you have a classic case of the other side of the abusive dyad in that you long ago learned, uh, based on your mistreatment growing up, that you couldn't express your anger, and you also learned to tolerate other people's anger. And your uh, schema is such that you're like, well, my anger makes other people angry, so I'm going to not be angry. Uh, that is not a reason to not be angry. Um, when I'm angry for legitimate reasons, uh, I don't care if it makes other people angry because m when I'm angry for legitimate reasons, then I don't give a fuck. <laughs> I'm angry. And if that bothers other people, then fuck them, you know, because we all deserve to be angry. And as a man, I have sort of the privilege to say such things because, um, I don't know, I was raised that way and society allows me to be that way some, to some extent. But uh, so you're going to have to push past that um, gender expectation for you. But 
and that internalized depression that you have. But that's a key, I'm guessing, to your well-being. Obviously, your, your therapist knows better than I do, but it's probably extremely important to your well-being that you learn how to identify your anger and express it effectively. Uh, it will probably result in less depression and definitely probably result in le- definitely probably <laughs> result in less self-injury. When we have learned that we cannot express our anger and that it's dangerous to express our anger, our anger doesn't go away, as you know. It has to go somewhere. And so a lot of women are taught to internalize it, to turn it against the self, because it has to go somewhere. And so we uh, beat ourselves up, which can be depressing and demoralizing. Um, and or we injure ourselves as a way of punishing someone. It's like, well, someone has to be punished for what's happening here. And I can't express that externally. So I've, I've got to do it to myself. Your needs need to be heard and your needs need to be met. And in order for your needs to be met and heard is you have to identify with your needs and connect with that, which means that sometimes you're going to get angry. Like him being rageful is hurtful and scary to you. And a uh, there's a whole slew of emotions that a normal person would have. And I'm guessing that you do have deep down uh, hurt, fear, anger, uh, you know, those kinds of feelings. And you have to express those because when you express those emotions, one, you recognize in yourself that you're having those emotions and you can begin to focus on what you need, but it also focuses other people on what you need. So um, make sure that, you know, you work with your therapist on that. You also ask here, how do we pick partners that are similar to our parents, especially if they don't seem anything like that in the beginning? Are we just walking around with a blind spot in the beginning stages of a relationship? My partner isn't really like my father, but I find myself walking around trying to be a good girl so he doesn't get mad in the same way I did with my dad when I was a kid. End of email. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head. He's not like your father on the surface, but he's exactly like your father in essence. So when you look at your partner, you're like, oh, he's nothing like my dad. Because, you know, maybe your dad went fishing and your partner doesn't, or your dad was a, you know, a blue collar guy and your partner is a white collar guy. Um, Whatever, those kinds of differences. Well, that, you know, those are differences and they're real, but in essence, the emotional uh, life of your partner is in some ways exactly the same as your father's. And so, uh, although he's different, he's the same. And so in the beginning, when you were looking at him, you were saying, oh my God, he's completely different from my dad. I'm, I, you know, I'm not going to have to go through that hell that I did with my own dad uh, because this guy's nothing like my dad. And it's a very common thing that we do. We, we will say, and, and we, we do this as, as well with like partners comparing to past partners. We'll be like, um, you know, you start dating someone and you're thinking, oh my God, they're nothing like my ex-husband or my ex-wife. Thank God, you know, and then three years later, you're like, oh, my God, they're exactly like my ex. I just didn't see it because they didn't have the overt similarities, but they, in essence, they're the same. Yeah, we have blind spots. Freud identified this over 100 years ago, calling it the repetition compulsion. Object relationalists um, notice it as well through projective identification means. Um, You know, we... 
we also just have a skewed sense of what's okay. So when you were young, you were being mistreated by a rageful father, and that gave you this skewed sense of what is okay for people to do. And so although you knew it was wrong, and now, and, and even now you know it's wrong for your father to be that way, you uh, have this sense of just like, well, you know, sometimes people blow their tops and they get angry, and it's not, not a big deal. And it doesn't really uh, trigger in you the a red flag of like, whoa, what's happening right here? And so when you first met your partner, there were probably signs of him being at least a little bit rageful, a little bit intimidating, a little bit overreactive. And because your dad modeled for you a particular style of, of emotional regulation, it didn't really trigger a worrisome uh, reaction from you because you were very much used to it and it just it's normalized to you. And that's one of the tragedies of going through difficulties like that when you're young is that you um, it, it, it does it doesn't help in your ability to sort of detect these sorts of people later in life. But going back to projective identification, you uh, again, I don't know you and uh, all this could be wrong, but uh, based on your description um, and obviously talk with your therapist about this, but it's possible that, you know, while you were with your father and he was being rageful, you were internalizing that relationship. So you, you internalize this dyad, you internalize a, a perception of yourself, which is a scared young girl and a perception of your dad, which is a very scary, intimidating, rageful father. So you internalize those, those, those two elements and they're, they're eternally bound in your, in your mind and they're associated with love and attachment because presumably you love your father and you were attached to him and looked up to him and wanted to please him and felt connected to him when you pleased him and, and suppressed your own anger. And so it's all there. And then later in life, we will try to recreate those dyads in our uh, adult relationships for a number of reasons. One is we need to externalize things that are internal because they're not um, very pleasant to have them internal because it causes all this strife and negative self-talk and whatnot. But uh, it also uh, allows us this opportunity subconsciously to have a corrective experience. We're trying to recreate this past relationship and our subconscious is hoping that it will go better this time. But the self-sabotage here is that unless we're really aware of it and, and or lucky to find someone who actually isn't like our, our, you know, isn't like your father, then you're likely just to repeat the exact same relationship and incur the same traumas with your current partner. So the key is, is becoming aware of that projective identification um, and uh, figuring out how both of you are socializing the other person to be like someone. It's, it's quite possible that your partner was abused when he was growing up, either emotionally or physically or sexually, I suppose. But and he internalized the dyad too. He probably internalized himself being scared and another person being intimidated in the same way that you did. But because of his socialization, maybe as a male, he has decided to identify with the angry, rageful side and make you feel like the way he did when he was a kid. And again, this is an externalization. So you're making your partner feel like your dad, even the, and he's making you feel like the way he felt when he was a kid, if that makes any sense. And uh, again, it, it's absolutely treatable. You can absolutely uh, become, a, so there's two pillars. One is, is both of you become aware of your emotions and better able to express that um, in a effective way. Like 
at the end of therapy for the two of you, um, and you can go to couples therapy too for this, uh, he might say something like, so the other day when you did this to me, um, it, it made me angry. And I think I was angry because uh, it sort of reminded me of the way my dad or my mom would withdraw from me. And it sort of scared me into thinking you were never, you didn't really love me. And so I started to pout and I got angry. And then when you did something bad, uh, like you didn't empty the dishwasher in time or something, um, I just exploded because I had all this um, unresolved anger and hurt that was underground. I didn't really notice it until I was like five minutes into my rage-a-thon again. And I'm really sorry about that. And then you might say something like, um, well, the other day, when, you know, or for the past month, I have been suppressing my anger about the way you've been treating me. And as a result, I've been withdrawing from you and, and trying to please you all the time and not really being authentic with you and real with you. And I think you detect that as me actually um, not really being in the room with you and actually not being present and um, in connection with you. And I'm, I'm guessing it probably hurts your feelings and worries you. And so um, I'm going to try to work on being more assertive about, you know, what's going on with me. Um, so it's not like you're uh, never going to have those kinds of moments. It's just a matter of uh, managing them and trying to recover from them as soon as possible. Um, another reason why people tend to recreate these things um, in their adult lives is uh, due to systems theory or um, is a systems theory can uh, provide an explanation. Um, you fit well together is one of the ways, and I'm, I'm kind of phrasing it that. Again, I don't know the two of you. I'm, I'm just making some absolute speculations and guesses based on the very little information I have. But so, you know, you and your partner both need love and closeness and you both need attunement and love and nurturance and stability, security, attachment, security. And you, uh, you, you both have emotions and you both have very similar emotions as most people do. And you both have anger. You both have hurt. You both need closeness, but since you long ago were punished for expressing your anger, you learned that you can't express your anger. And so instead, you need someone else to express your anger. And your partner is a good person for you. He serves that purpose for you. He expresses both of your angers. And for him, he needs someone who can tolerate his large anger. And you do that very well because you learned long ago to suppress your needs and your um, safety uh, and your, I don't know, self-preservation because you had to given the way you were raised. And so the two of you fit very well together. And so systems theory sort of um, uh, provides an explanation as to, as to why the two of you um, have this fusion and this problem. And so the, the uh, systems solution is to have more flexibility around the roles that each one of you play. You play the nice guy and your husband plays the, um, or your, your partner plays the, uh, I don't know, the person who alerts the system to when something's wrong. And uh, he's not doing it in a uh, effective way, but he's doing it. You know, someone has to alert the system that something is going wrong. And once both of you start alerting the system uh, when something is wrong and both of you 
accommodate for the other person, then there's more flexibility where you're, you're, you're in a bad mood and you are angry and he's taking care of you. And then another day he's in a bad mood. He's going through a tough time. He's upset and you're taking care of him. And just having that flexibility is the probably like a direction that you want to go in because it doesn't sound like you do have that flexibility. Um, I'm really glad you're in therapy. Uh, he's thinking about going to therapy. I, I really, really hope he finds a good one for him. I, I would, you know, because uh, he, it sounds like he's suffering quite a bit and he really just does deserve therapy for that. All right. This next email is from an anonymous person. Uh, he writes, Dr. Kirk, I was out in Seattle this past weekend and tried some marijuana edibles on Monday. I had a panic attack and was worried for a period of time during the high that my life would be ending. I took 100 milligrams, which I have now learned was way too much for a first-time user. After coming down from the high, I still don't feel completely right. There are times where I feel like I'm 95% back to normal and other times where it feels like I'm 70% back. The panic attacks are less severe than the night I first had it, but just today I was really anxious that the drugs would permanently affect my ability to function, and as a result, I couldn't hold a conversation at the dinner table. Do you know the best next steps for what I'm going through? <clears throat> End of email. Uh, yeah, you took way too much. Uh, I don't know um, if you were a first-time user of marijuana or maybe you're just a casual user and... Uh, yeah, you, you might have taken as five to 10, maybe even 20 times uh, the amount that you needed. You know, imagine if you did that with alcohol. It's like, yeah, I was trying to get a good buzz, you know, like maybe three drinks, but instead I took 30 drinks. You know, I drank one and a half fifths of vodka. You know, it's essentially what you did to yourself. And, you know, people, listen to me. You have to take it slow with the fucking edibles. Uh, people come to Seattle and they're like, woo, uh, you know, let's party legalized. We let's do this thing because it's like you've lived in, you know, Kansas or something and you're, uh, used to like, well, when you can get it, you got to use it. And you might, depending on your situation, have a hard time accessing it or at, least, at the very least using it with, um, I don't know, feeling comfortable you know, it's sort of like people go to Vegas and they'll just drink the first night, you know, themselves into puking in the toilet. And it, it's a similar kind of thing. It's like, well, we're we're here. Let's do this thing. And, you know, when it comes to substances, um, you know, you just have to know your limits so you don't ruin your time. <laughs> you want, uh, Presumably, you wanted to get high, but you didn't want to have panic attacks and think you're going to die. So the other thing is, is there's some there's just something about people in edibles. Um I can't tell you how many times I've heard of casual marijuana users um, overdosing on edibles. There's just something about it. I think part of it is that it's so easy to do, like uh, particularly in the past. You don't have any excuse now because in weed shops in Seattle, they give you a very exact amount of milligrams of THC in the subs in the, you know, whatever they're giving you, whether it's a gummy bear or a brownie or a cookie or whatever. And they'll say, you know, this this cookie has this amount of marijuana in it. Whereas before, you know, your random college buddy made them in the oven, the brownies, and you really just had no idea. Plus it could be kind of clumpy with the marijuana. And so, but now um, you don't really have that excuse anymore. 
And uh, so, uh, but another thing is that it takes a while for it to kick in. And a lot of people, when you're smoking marijuana, you know, the high happens, you know, fairly quickly. Whereas with edibles, it could take a half hour, hour for it to get to its full, you know, potential. And people will take a little bit of an edible and then like 10 minutes later, it's like, oh, I don't, I'm not high. <laughs> and so they, it's like, well, you got to wait. So, uh, yeah, people really just, you know, take it easy with the, <laughs> plus it's like, Google it. <laughs> um, I smoke marijuana once every month. How much of an edible should I eat? Also in Seattle, ask your bud tenders. We call them bud tenders. Ask the you know, the person working behind the counter, it's like, okay, I smoke weed about once a month. How much of an edible should I have in order to feel pretty good today? Um, you know, get that consultation. Pot is a serious drug and it needs to be taken seriously. From my memory, from my, you know, studying of cannabinoid receptors in, in our nervous system, I think it's the most numerous receptor in our nervous system, which is kind of interesting, right? That uh, the receptor, you know, when you um, ingest or, you know, inhale or whatever you get, you get THC into your body and, and, um, uh, you, uh, and CBD, you, your, uh, your whole nervous system, uh, throughout your whole nervous system, there are receptors that will respond to that, um, that substance and that, that compound. And it affects all sorts of systems. Um, not just the ones that you're trying to go for, like relaxation or novelty or enjoying music. Uh, it affects so many different systems in the body, and it sticks around for a long time. So you just it's a serious drug, and most people manage it well, but you just have to be careful. It's not just it's not fun and games, you know. This happens all the time, by the way, um, where someone will take too much, they'll have a massive anxiety reaction and will be kind of traumatized by it and will think they're going to die and will, or think they're going to go crazy. And then for days after, if not years, people will suffer from the trauma of that, just that single event. Um, so it, you know, it happens all the time. Uh, and, um, you know, you wouldn't hear about these stories, particularly when it was illegal, but even today, um, you have a hard time finding stories or accounts from people who will talk about this. And so like with alcohol, I, f I feel like most people understand, even before they've had their first drink, that they understand if you drink too much, something bad will happen. And they'll say, well, you know, I've seen it in movies where you puke or, you, you know, you're really sick or you pass out or something. You know, with people, most people are aware of the ill effects of overdosing on alcohol. But when it comes to overdosing on marijuana, I feel like not a lot of people understand it. They just think like, oh, well, it's natural. And uh, you just you just get real high and you just get you just get the munchies like something fierce, right? It's like, no, no, no. <laughs> There's absolutely a threshold for everyone, even for people who use it all the time, where it's overload and your nervous system uh, starts to have some extremely negative effects, including the the very, very common effects that, that you listed. 
panic, anxiety, uh, thinking you're going to die, thinking you're going crazy, and then for days after just not feeling right and worries that you're always going to be that way, even triggering panic disorder in some people. Some people will have what you had, and for the rest of their life, they have panic disorder. So uh, basically because of the trauma, and because it's no joke, the terror, you know, um, and and I find that people don't talk about it for a lot of reasons, um, because it's not very fun to talk about, right? Like a lot of people, when they talk about weed, they want to talk about the good times. And a lot of people downplay it too. You know, you'll, you'll tell the story to someone and, and they'll be like, oh, you know, you must not have been in the right headspace. You know, basically blaming the victim. It's like, you wouldn't say that to someone who overdosed on alcohol and was puking under the toilet, right? You wouldn't be like, oh, you know, you weren't really in the right headspace. It's like, no, I had nothing to do with my fucking headspace. I overdosed on something and I had a very common negative reaction to overdosing. Um, Or someone will say like, oh yeah, I get paranoid too sometimes. It's like, this was way beyond paranoia. This was panic and days of not feeling okay and I'm scared. You know what I mean? So for some people, events like this can be the worst moment of their life and it's no joke. And yet somehow people just walk headlong into these situations without ever having been warned. I mean, I feel like um, these these uh, you know places where they sell marijuana in Seattle, I feel like they should tell people. I th- feel like they should be like, the first question they should ask is, are you a regular pot user or is this, are you just kind of, or do you dabble? Maybe this is your first time. And if someone's not very experienced with dosing, you know, they should get the talk. <laughs> they should be like, so you need to ease yourself into this. You know, um, you might want to even take like a few sessions, shall we say, to kind of get used to the, the low grade feeling. And, and so you know where your body's at. Because the other thing is some bodies just operate differently and the dosage won't be the same for, 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 or the day, the diet that they're on or something. So, you know, it's something that you, you have to ease into carefully so you don't traumatize yourself. Um, so based on your description from all the other people I've talked to about this, you're probably still recovering. I don't know. Obviously, you want to talk to a therapist about this. You want to talk to your physician about this. But in all likelihood, you'll be fine after a few weeks, and um, uh, and you're not going to go crazy. And there's no long-lasting damage to your nervous system in all in all likelihood. Um, but you might suffer from traumatic, uh, you know, symptoms, panic attack, or even PTSD later on. So I would definitely talk with a therapist about this um, if you find yourself having any kind of residual psychological effects from this. It's not because of the pot in all likelihood. It's because of the trauma of the event. So hopefully you get the help that you need. And people, when you come to Seattle, uh, you know, ramp up to it. Don't go nuts. All right. This next email is from an anonymous person. Uh, they actually sent me something that was on Reddit and uh, because I often will talk about this. And so I just thought I'd read it. Um, it's a subreddit for psychology students. And someone was asking, you know, what does a research psychologist do day to day? And I thought this was a really good question. And someone um, answered this question. Um, and I, I won't read the whole response, but basically what this, this Barry Borealis person was saying on Reddit was that 
Um, you have to delay gratification quite a bit as a research psychologist. Uh, well, maybe I just will read it. Um, so this person says, I have interned as a research assistant in a psychiatric hospital, and I'm currently helping out as a research assistant in another hospital researching in neurodevelopment in children. As an intern, I did a lot of data entry and administrative stuff, but I was allowed to shadow my supervisors who were full-time research psychologists. Based on observing the more senior research psychologists, it involves interviewing participants, data analysis, and report writing. It is very heavily computer-based for report writing and data analysis and public, and public facing, especially if you need to do participant recruitment. As a researcher, I learned you also need to be proficient in administrative matters like grant proposals and IRB approvals and content and consent taking, especially if you're dealing with human participants. With regards to brain scans, because the original question was like, I want to do fMRI stuff. I have colleagues who have analyzed fMRI scans full time, and it takes up most of their day looking into the computer uh, at all the scans and compiling everything into a massive spreadsheet. Because even if something looks cool, it has to be uh, statistically significant, and that involves going through hundreds of scans. It's very data entry based. Day-to-day-wise, no big discoveries will be made, and if they are, it's far and few. Even then, you'll be, having to de- you'll, you'll be having to deal with many times with negative results. But when there is a discovery, it's pretty satisfying, although you got to hold back that dopamine rush until your statistical methods have been proven to be robust enough to show that the results hold. So my personal take is that if you want to go into this job, you need to be able to delay gratification really well. Um, I'm sorry if I sound slightly jaded over this, because I am, which is why I'm now looking more towards clinical work. If anyone has a different experience, you know, blah, blah. So I feel like this person describes it really well. And, uh, you know, because I get a lot of questions from people saying, you know, I want to be a research psychologist, or I want to research this or that. And, you know, what sort of career path should I take? And one of the first things I say is, like, do you know the reality of the... Uh, field that you're going into. There's this myth in society, and it makes sense because how would you know otherwise? Is like, okay, I get my doctorate in psychology, and then I just start doing research, right? And I get to research all those questions that I've been wanting to answer, like, you know, why did my ex-girlfriend break up with me? (laughs) Or, you know, broader questions like, you know, why do people with that sort of personality, um, why are they so commitment phobic or something? You know, people's research questions typically come from their personal lives. You'll see that reflected in people's dissertations, too. It's like, um, you know, just certain questions that they're asking. It's like, huh, I wonder what happened in your life that prompted that interest in that question. So, you know, we have a lot of uh, things that we want to research, right? It's like, oh, I just have this vision that I'm going to be like discovering things and I'm going to be, you know, get a Nobel Prize. And it's possible, but it is not likely. And this person who's writing in uh, describes the sort of progression and the hierarchy pretty well. He was an intern and above him are research assistants and above above those people are, uh, you know, sort of mid-level researchers who are, uh, they might be tenured professors. They might be. They might not be, and they or sort of mid-level management at a research lab or something. And then you have the top researchers at the top who have been, uh, who are the main authors of the studies, who are the people who get the funding, who are the famous people known for certain things in in certain fields. 
And these are the people that run the show. They're the ones that make the choices. They're the ones that make the discoveries. They're the ones who are attributed this, the, the discoveries. They're the ones who get all the glory. They do all the fun stuff. And even them, as this person points out, are spending a lot of time on the computers, uh, writing um, IRBs. Essentially, when you do research, you have to you have to go through all these tedious steps because we have ethics boards that monitor what we're doing to people. And then a lot of times the, you know, the main researchers, you spend a million dollars in like five years of your life and then you have negative results or you, you know, the null hypothesis and you, you just like, well, it's kind of interesting because I guess we learned that our hypothesis um, wasn't, uh, you know, demonstrated, but it's a bummer because you just spent five, you know, you just spent five years of your life and getting even one of the low paying jobs is actually really hard. What, you know, one of the low tier positions is actually really hard. And again, as you know, this person's pointing out, it's tedious at that level. You're, you're, you know, entering a lot of shit in the databases and, um, you know, the discoveries are few and far between and the quote unquote discoveries you know, this, the, the typical discoveries that these research teams will make will be so obscure and so uh, minor in the grand scheme of the science is, that no one will care. Like when you talk about it over, you know, uh, dinner plans with people, they'll just be like, man, that's such a minuscule area of natural sciences. Like, you know, aren't you studying bigger issues than that? So... Uh, now, that isn't to say that the people who are there don't love it, because I guess many of them do. But you just have to go into the field knowing that it's not as romantic as you think it is. It's sort of like when you see those commercials for joining the Army or the Navy. They make it look so fantastic, right? You're jumping out of airplanes and you're, you know, you're, you're talking to young kids in Iraq and you're giving them high fives and you're saving the world. And, and it's like anyone in the military will tell you it does not look like the commercials. <laughs> there's a lot of tedium. There's a lot of cleaning. There's a lot of administrative stuff. There's a lot of politics. There's a lot of bullshit. There's a lot of walking. There's a lot of sand in your ass. There's a lot of terror of actually worrying that you're going to get killed. Um, there's a lot of picking up boxes and moving them. There's a lot, you know, there's just a lot of shit that is, has not glamorous at all. And, uh, so it's just, it's just one of those things that, um, it, you just have to go into it with open eyes because what I see is people, you know, when they, when they're talking with me, they're already applying for psychology programs and, uh, they might even be in a program. I don't know, but, but, they at that uh, presumably no one's told them what I'm telling them, right? No one's told them, by the way, are you sure you understand what you're getting into? And uh, that worries me, you know, that people are because uh, to get a doctorate in psychology, if you include the, you know, a BA, but let's not, well, let's not even include a bachelor's degree, you know, post bachelor's to get a degree in psychology, you're looking at like $140,000 in tuition alone, tuition and books, maybe. Uh, and that's on the cheaper side, you're looking at maybe a hundred thousand dollars, I don't know, 80,000. If you go to a public university, which is really hard to get into like the university of Washington. Um, and I mean, of course, I guess there are some grants, some loans, but, 
uh, it's really hard to get. In all likelihood, you're going to be graduating with at least $150,000 in debt. I know people who are in the middle of their doctorate and they have $250,000 in debt because it includes their bachelor's. Because, you know, it's not just tuition you need money for, you know, it's getting your doctorate is full-time work. It's really hard to work on the side. It's really hard to have a job on the side. And even if you did, it's not, it's not likely you're getting paid that much. And so it better be fucking worth it. Right. (laughs) And so as this person on Reddit was saying, it's just like, I, this is, this used to be my dream and I, this is what I got my degree in and this is what I started doing. And then I actually saw what the real life was like. And I, and I discovered that it sucks and I became jaded. So that's why I'm actually going into clinical work because I don't, I didn't realize how shitty this, this job path was. And so I just thought I would drop that in. Having said all that, if we didn't have researchers, where would we be? Right. So thank God for those people and, and all the hard work that they're doing. All right. This next email is from patron Magdalena from Prague. Magdalena writes in, and she she writes a pretty long email, but I'll just summarize it as best I can. She started therapy with her uh, her first therapist, and she really liked her therapist, and she felt like they really got along really well, and which is great. And she uh, felt like her therapist was very genuine and very authentic, and would self disclose a lot and was very helpful. And it was like she uh, finally had sort of a mother figure that she was looking for. And she seemed to either get the impression or even the direct communication from her therapist that her therapist saw her as the daughter she never had as well. So they had a very mother-daughter relationship that was either implicit or explicit. And um, she was very bonded to her. Now, so far, just I'll evaluate this. Nothing wrong with that. Something wrong with a relationship being that type. Not every therapist is like that, and not every therapist-client relationship is like that, but um, there's nothing wrong with that. There's pros and cons to it, but it might sound a little weird to some people, but um, there's nothing wrong. Uh, In fact, the best form of therapy or the most long-lasting, the most powerfully healing sorts of therapy involve a parent-child emulation, shall we say, for corrective experiences. Um, But anyway, so then uh, her story goes on for a number of years, and she, at some point, um, had to leave her therapist. I can't remember the the exact reason, but she started seeing another therapist, and then uh, she started going to a group therapy. But instead of terminating with her first therapist, she kept working with her her original therapist and her original therapist would say things like, well, this isn't really therapy. Um, This is just a consultant relationship or something. And she also made sure that uh, uh, the client's new therapist was cool with that relationship. And the therapist, although seemed a little uncomfortable, uh, basically allowed it to happen. And so this is the first red flag of sort of bad boundaries, essentially. Now, it's not clear if it would harm the client or not. And when you hear the rest of the story, it doesn't seem like it did harm the client. But this sort of thing, you know, I don't know what it's like in Prague, but in my neck of the woods, therapists can't technically do this. I mean, there, there's chances where you sort of get away with it. But generally speaking, 
it's not um, smiled upon. The standard of practice and ethical codes and the laws are such that once you're a therapist, you're always a therapist to that person. And you can't just say, okay, now we're going to switch to this different sort of professional relationship, even though it pretty much is exactly the same as our previous relationship because she still accepted money from the client. She was still treating the client and she was just sort of like a secondary therapist. Now there's nothing wrong with having a secondary therapist, but to frame it like a consultant instead of actual therapy is in my opinion, problematic. Uh, it raises the risk for the client. So these are what we call boundary crossings in that boundary crossings are risks, but they're not necessarily harmful to the client. And there didn't seem to be any harm to the client from this, but it's risky. Then um, the story goes on and she stops seeing that original therapist, I think, and then she stops going to the group. But she, you know, she stays with this original therapist and, uh, and sees her uh, maybe not very frequently, but um, continues to see her. Then years later, she starts to talk on the phone with, with her original therapist while she sees a new therapist. And uh, still is charging for the time from what I can understand. And, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. And again, she really likes the relationship. Oh, and then her original therapist actually closed down her practice, but kept this, you know, Magdalena as a client, uh, even after she closed her practice and kept charging her. And so she has all these questions about it at this point. You know, she says, um, and she also, Magdalena says that she has relational traumas growing up and she has, you know, issues and that's why she needs this sort of relationship. And so she asked me, you know, what are your thoughts about this situation? What are the pitfalls and drawbacks of befriending a former? Oh, so the other thing is that Magdalena seems to think that she wants to transition her relationship with this person into a friendship that, um, you know, she doesn't want to lose this therapist and she doesn't want to lose this mother figure. And this mother figure therapist keeps talking about how, well, eventually I'm going to have to terminate this relationship for good. And Magdalena doesn't want it to end. So she's asking, you know, what are your thoughts on this situation? What are the pitfalls and drawbacks of befriending my former therapist? How do I navigate such situations without anyone getting hurt? And me in particular. So the there's there's risks here but by the way you're talking about it it doesn't seem like the risks are extremely high because it sounds like your therapist isn't you know these sorts of boundary crossings are often uh you know frowned upon because they will lead to uh, they they sometimes lead to really bad things like i get a lot of emails from other people who will send me similar stories, but it won't just end with that. It will end with, um, now she wants to have sex with me, or now she wants me to, um, clean her house or, um, now she's telling me all about her life story. And, you know, 75% of our session is her telling me about her life. And I feel now like the therapy I'm paying for therapy and I'm, I'm mainly there just trying to help her. So that's, sometimes how it ends, but there doesn't seem to be anything like that. So there, there don't seem to be any uh, risks or detriments to you from what I would call to be a very loose boundaried and somewhat ethically problematic relationship shift. 
now it's possible that you're misinterpreting things. And if I talk to your therapist, your therapist would say, oh no, I've been on the up and up with my client. Magdalena just doesn't really see it the way that I keep telling her to see it. So I don't, I don't really know, but it does sound like your therapist is um, loose boundary. And it raises risks. Like the risks to you are that um, when the time comes, when and if your therapist does decide to finally terminate with you and say, okay, we're done. I, um, I, I really just have to terminate. At that point, it might be hard for you to take and it might be like 10 times more painful to you because you know how loose she is with her boundaries. And you also know a ton about her personal life in that you're like, well, you could be talking with me if you wanted to. And you're just choosing not to because you want to be quote unquote ethical or you just don't even want to talk to me me anymore. And that's part of the problem with breaking the frame of therapy is that once you, you know, like let's say I was in that situation and I, cause I don't have loose boundaries like that. And I came to the, now there's pros and cons, right? So the con is that I might not be able to get as close as I could if I was like your therapist. Um, but the pro to my approach is that let's say I'm her and I'm retiring and um, I had very clear, um, you know, boundaries. Like I wouldn't even necessarily tell you, like one of the things she told you was that she had actually terminated with all of her or many of her other clients, but not you. So I wouldn't tell you that because you don't need to know that. And that is something, if I did do that, I wouldn't tell you because you don't need to know that. It's really none of your business. And it's about other people's lives that don't have to do with you. And I wouldn't want to confuse things. And then, so you wouldn't even know. And then the other thing would happen was um, when it did time, did come time for me to terminate with you, you might have some questions like, well, wait, do you have time for me? And you're just choosing not to see me. I just wouldn't answer those questions. And, and I would just say, you know, I'm really sad that I do have to terminate with you and I am closing my practice and I am retiring and I will miss you greatly. And there'll just be a lot of question marks in your head around like, well, you know, what's going on? But at the very least, you won't have confirmation that if I just sort of decided I could continue to see you, you would probably figure that I terminated with all my clients in a similar fashion, which is what I would normally do. Um, and so there's not a question of preferential treatment. And you would, although grieve, just like I would be grieving, you wouldn't have all these questions in your mind. And this is why therapists, we need to have boundaries. Once, especially for clients who have relational traumas, they not only will you can bond and you can have corrective experiences and reparenting experiences with your clients without telling them about the details of your life. Now there's good self-disclosure. Like I know how that feels, or I have been hurt too, or I know what it's like to have low self-esteem. And then you just sort of end there or something. It's another thing to be like, well, I'm closing my practice and da da da, and here's who I am, and this is what I'm struggling with, and I always wanted a, a daughter in my life, and you're the perfect daughter for me, and I, you know, I terminated with my other clients. Like, there's no need for those other details to be out there, and I know a lot of therapists that actually self-disclose in that way, and it's it's not a bad thing, it's not inherently bad, like having sex with your clients, but it just raises these risks, and you see this position that Magdalena is in right now where 
she she's like she is she knows so much about her therapist's life that it complicates this relationship and it's possible it's possible that magdalena's therapist is is actually not terminating with her when she feels like she should or wants to because she knows she's already let magdalena into her personal life so much that it's hard for her to justify uh, you know disappointing magdalena in this way and um but you know uh, i don't know the situation entirely so so you're asking me magdalena you know what what are my thoughts on this situation that's what i'll say about that is that it it doesn't sound like you're being harmed she definitely had some boundary crossing but it's not inherently unethical it's it's just risky and you're asking you know what are the pitfalls uh now now you're asking this other question like well i i want to become my therapist friend and what are the pitfalls and the drawbacks well uh again it it's it's not uh now it's not a good idea and it's definitely frowned upon um and if something goes terribly wrong so let's say she um she uh closes her practice entirely and you're the last client she sees and then after she closes shop she's like but i now that my practice is over i'd still like to have contact with you sometimes because i i you know i feel like the two of us have a bond that i'd like to go beyond therapy and i won't charge you and we'll we'll just it'll be like a mentor relationship or you know a sort of family relationship on some level well that's not inherently unethical because depending on you know what the ethical codes and laws are in prague um but it carries with it some risks and if it's also possible that if somehow you were harmed by that uh, in my jurisdiction anyway you could still sue her for um you know civil damages for not following you know the strict standard of practice which is once you terminate there's no there's no dual relationship there um so the risks to you are that your therapist once you become friends if that even if your therapist is even up for that you could find that that sort of relationship is more mutual and more two-sided than you act, than you want it to be the other thing is is you know friendships will disappoint each other sometimes and uh how do you navigate that you know when you're a therapist client you, it's a it's a sacred relationship and the, it's this sacred space where you can really talk about your reactions to each other when you're friends it's maybe not so much that way but it could be it's not inherently bad so the pitfalls to you the risk to you is that you might find and i've heard this more times than not that when you when you make that switch to that other relationship you will want her to be the same because of course you want that mostly one-way relationship but she will change because she is tired and she's not working and she's not getting paid anymore so she's going to start turning it into a two-way relationship and sometimes people in your position are um, significantly hurt their feelings are significantly hurt and they're disillusioned by that shift and it's very distressing for them so that is a drawback that's a pitfall that could taint your entire relationship with this person that was otherwise very positive for you. So that's what I'll say about that. Um now I'm not one of those paranoid rule rule followers 
who will say, you know, we got to follow the rules because um, ethical things are considerations. And like I said, it doesn't sound like you've been harmed by any of, of her loose boundaries yet. So, you know, maybe things will work out okay, but I, I would I would think about it carefully. So, you know, one option is to be like, okay, we had a great relationship. That relationship is over. I just want to let that go. And I want to look back on that relationship as positive as it was for that many years. And I don't want to take the risk involved in befriending her. Maybe I'll check in with her once a year, once every six months over the phone for a half an hour, and that'll be it. Um, you know, I could see that working. I could see it also being problematic. <laughs> um, but, you know, losing a relationship like that is a big deal. It's a big loss, and um, I, I, I don't want to minimize that. All right, this next email is from an anonymous person. They want me to talk about sadistic personality disorder, and they say, Hey, Dr. Honda, recently in the news, there was a police officer in Florida by the name of Zachary Wester, who was caught planting drugs on innocent people and arresting them. He has done this to over 120 people. This feels like sadistic personality to me. This feels like sadistic personality to me. And do you agree? And do you have any insight into this personality type? Uh, yeah, that sounds awful for a police officer whom we pay with our do- tax dollars and trust to follow the law and uphold the law. And for them to be caught planting drugs on innocent people to over 100 people is um, just truly awful. Uh, you know, you expect the criminals to do stuff like this, but our police officers are supposed to be way beyond that sort of thing. Uh, then you say, you know, this this feels like sadistic personality to me. Um, you don't have enough information for that. There's so many reasons why someone would do this personality-wise. Uh, sadistic personality, any personality disorder is complex and Uh, If it's one thing I hope all of you have learned from listening to me is unless you are a specialist in that personality disorder or personality disorders in general, then you do not understand that personality disorder. And just reading the criteria and applying it to a certain case is far from the wisdom of experience. You know, I don't think a lot of lay people think that they could diagnose like thyroid disease or cancer or something. Uh, I think most people understand, like, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even know where to look. I I understand that sort of the basics of, of cancer, but I certainly couldn't assess it and diagnose it. It's the same when it comes to psychology. Um, There are many clinicians, you know, in the same way that like a family physician might not be able to diagnose cancer because it's not their specialty. Uh, most clinicians in my anecdotal experience don't have enough experience or conceptualization time or supervision or guidance regarding personality disorders. So uh, even clinicians have a hard time with it. And actually research has found that. So it's, um, so understand that, that just reading a news story about someone who has planted drugs uh, and that's all you have about them is not an indication. I guess it's a yellow flag for sadistic personality, but but not really. I mean, there's so many reasons why police officers will plant drugs. Uh, one is that it's the culture of the police force that they're on, and that's just what they do. Another is, is it could be sort of this um, 
effort to help society. There can be some police officers who are seeing criminals get away with things because of technicalities or something. And they can just tell that people are guilty or they think they can tell. And maybe they're accurate. And they're just so frustrated and they figure, fuck it. I'm just going to plant evidence because I know that these guys are criminals anyway, and I'm getting them off the streets and I'm doing a bad thing for a good reason. Uh, They could believe that. Uh, They could also be corrupt themselves, you know, struggling with alcoholism or drug addiction themselves. And they're trying to come up with a quick buck themselves. Maybe they're being pushed by their superiors and the police force to arrest more people. Maybe they're racist and they're just trying to pin crimes on certain groups of people. Uh, There's just so many different reasons that would motivate a a police officer to uh, plant drugs on a lot of people. Um, He could um, just, I don't know what other person, there's other personality types, I suppose, like narcissism. He, he could be known for being someone who, you know, catches the bad guy and he needs to keep up that appearance. So he just plants drugs on people. Um, there's just, there's just so many different reasons. So, uh, sadistic personality disorder is, um, I suppose one of them, but there's probably a hundred different reasons, but I'm going to add sadistic personality disorder to the list of potential deep dives. All right, this next email is from an anonymous person. They write, I remember in one of your episodes, you talked about how there is a technique in family therapy that is used as a bit of a last resort. It's when the family isn't gelling using traditional methods. So the therapist starts to, so the therapist starts barking commands at the family, making himself the scapegoat. The family then walks out because they hate the therapist, but they're more connected because they had a scapegoat to hate. That was the therapist. And then the therapist thinks he's a genius because that's exactly what he wanted. My question is, are these types of mind game techniques used often? I told a few of my friends who are interested in this field about this technique, and they said it's unethical. And I'm the type of person who believes that the ends justify the means, so I tend to like this sort of thing. Are certain techniques controversial in the therapeutic community because of the ethics involved? End of email. Yeah, so I've talked about this before. It's a classic family therapy um, technique that's, uh, you know, I'd say a minority of family therapists would use this back in the day. Uh, Some people call it strategic. Uh, Structural therapists did this sometimes back in the day. Brief therapists did this back in the day, Ericksonian people. It's not really done anymore. It's probably have, this sort of therapy probably hasn't been done since the 80s. I think it just fell out of fashion, really. And to be clear, it's not unethical. I mean, come on. Um, but it really, I guess it depends on what you mean by barking commands. I mean, if you're just yelling at your clients, um, that's one thing. It, it's opening yourself up to a lawsuit because if your clients hate you, that, that tends, they tend to be motivated to sue you. Um, but a classic uh, example that I probably gave back in the day was something like, um, uh, you know, look, so let's say you have a family that isn't getting along and they're having a hard time uh, reducing their conflict. And so the therapist will use a strategic technique of trying to um, either sort of outmaneuver the symptom or prescribe there there's different sort of ways of like prescribing the system like the symptom like um which i guess i should explain that one so say you have huge conflict and meshed conflict between daughter and mother 
and the daughter is 14 and all they do is fight. And the, the dad, the husband is always like trying to play the peacemaker and the mother and daughter are always highly reactive, getting at each other's throats. And you as a therapist have found that nothing has really worked to stop that. Well, one of the things you can do is you can say, okay, I want, I want daughter and mother to schedule a time to fight every day. Uh, what, what, what's a good time that you usually fight? And the clients are like, um, well, what do you mean? And you're like, well, you know, what, what's the general time? Well, I suppose we usually fight around dinner time. Okay. So around dinner time, was that six o'clock? Yeah. Okay. So every day at six o'clock, I want you to set your alarm. And uh, when the six, when the alarm goes off six o'clock, I want the two of you, well, where do you usually fight? Well, we usually fight in her bedroom. Okay. So I want you to go to her bedroom and I want you to fight. And I want you to, you know, really let each other have it and um, do that every day, six o'clock. You have to do it every day, though. You ha- and you have to trust me that if you if you if you really want to, um, you know, meet your goals in therapy and actually make your family better, I need you to follow this directive, this prescription. If you don't, um, you know, you're not going to get better. So trust me. You need to do this six o'clock. So then one, one of two things will happen. And this is bizarre, right? You're just like, what? And I'm guessing your friends would think this was unethical, but it's not. Um, one of two, the, the hope is, and what strategic therapists back in the day found was, or at least they said they found, was that two results will happen. Either one, they will actually follow the assignment. They will fight, but it won't feel natural. And it will feel weird to them because they're like, well, we're scheduling a fight. And through that off kilter stance that they're in trying to drum up a fight towards each other, it sort of throws the family off of their rut that they're in. And it creates this liminal space where they can begin to create something new. It sort of, it sort of unsticks the family. Um, The other result, which is also good is that, the daughter and the mother will go home and the next day, you know, the alarm will go off and they'll be like, I don't want to, I don't want to, our therapist is dumb. I mean, what a stupid assignment. Why, what kind of therapist assigns you to fight with your daughter? That's ridiculous. I'm not going to do that. And so whatever you need to do in your head, you know, you sort of figure out a way as a mother or a kid to uh, not conflict and to find a, find a different way to get along and a different way to communicate in the family. Then they come into the next session and they're like, so I just want to talk about this, that assignment you gave us last week. That was really stupid uh, to assign us to fight. Like that's dumb. And um, you know, uh, we refuse to do that. A therapist says, Oh, okay. Okay. Well, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe, you know, I can't, can't win them all. Uh, you know, how was your conflict this week? And the mother and the daughter are like, Oh, it was very low because you know, we're, we refuse to follow your commands. So, and you, you walk away again, uh, as you put it, uh, emailer, the therapist thinks he's a genius. And, you know, this kind of lends itself to that. It's sort of a power play and it was, you know, uh, no surprise developed by old white men. And it, it sort of has that air to it. And then when they would write about it in books, they would universally write about how it worked every time and how uh, these therapists could fix family conflict within like three minutes. And, um, you know, I'm just highly skeptical of those claims. So uh, now 
I will say that under some circumstances, I did use these techniques. I used them a long time ago. <laughs> I haven't had to use them in many years, but I did. You know, basically, I would use it with families who wouldn't budge. Sometimes I'd use it with teenagers or kids that were really stubborn about things. Basically, I would only employ it if I had tried everything else. You know, I tried awareness. I had tried communication skills. I had tried um, attachment-oriented therapies. I had tried cognitive oriented therapies and nothing was working and they were pretty desperate. The other, the other factor that needs to be in play is I need to believe that I need to do something now or else I'm going to lose the family or, um, you know, or I'm never going to see him again or something. Cause a lot of families don't come in for years and years. They, you know, might come in for six months or something. So let's say we're at the end of the six months and I'm like, ah, I'm probably going to lose this family. I better do something quick and try something out of the ordinary just to see if it works. And so I, would, I wouldn't do it with a high expectation of it working, but I'm like, well, I've tried everything else, so I might as well try this. And so I might even prescribe things like, um, I might say like, okay, you know, they're fighting a lot in session and they're complaining and they're, they're really disheartened and demoralized by how much hurt they've inflicted on the other, how much hurt they feel from the other people in their family. And I might say something like, okay, I see the two of you are fighting, and I also see that you, you don't really want to fight. So I, I really feel like, for whatever reason, the, the three of you do not have the capacity to even talk to each other without it eventually leading to a fight. And so what I'm going to prescribe is sort of an emergency prescription that you don't talk to each other at all between now and our next session. The only thing you can communicate is about logistical things like scheduling or something. And, it, and that can only be done over email or text. And it can only be about that thing. You cannot communicate about anything of substance at all. I don't want to see any love between the two of you. I don't want to see any conflict. I don't want to see any chit chat. I don't want to see any conversations. I don't want to see anything. Don't watch TV together, nothing. Uh, not because that I want you to do that, but because I just don't think right now the three of you can handle it because, I, and I don't know why, but I feel so bad for the three of you because you're, you're fighting so much. And I know sometimes you're not fighting, but it always seems like it eventually leads to a fight. So in fact, I don't even want you to acknowledge each other's existence. I don't want you to look at each other. Now, this isn't forever. It's just from now until the next session. And I want to see how that goes. So for the next seven days, I don't want to see any interaction. Don't even look at each other. Do, do you, does everyone understand? Now, in my head, I'm thinking um, this is a strategic intervention, one that I, I'm playing a mind game with them. Uh, but I don't want to come across like I'm doing a mind game because if they know I'm doing a mind game, then it won't work, right? So they have to really believe that I'm doing it. So I'm hoping for one of two things, that they go home and they're like, screw that guy. Uh, we can talk without fighting. We'll show him. We will talk and you know, communicate in a normal way and we won't have a fight between now and our next session because contrary to our stupid therapist idea of us, we do have the capacity to communicate without fighting. Screw that guy. He doesn't know us. Uh, so that's one outcome, which would be good, right? The other outcome is that they actually do 
what I say, and they don't even look at each other. And by day five, they sort of miss each other. And they realize that this distance doesn't feel good. And that, um, or at the very least, it'll give them seven days without conflict, you know, and they'll, they'll have a little bit more goodwill, you know, separation, uh, strength is the heart, or I don't know, how does that, <laughs> how does that uh, saying go? And so either way, the, the family wins. And I suppose I win because I feel like a genius for figuring out the key to their problems. Um, so yeah, I would do that, but I probably haven't done that in, I don't know, 18 years. And I never hear about ther- uh, therapists doing this sort of thing. I mean, I, I live in a circle of family therapists and um, I imagine some of them do it maybe some of the time. I mean, there's little things you can do also with kids like, um, uh, you know, parents and teachers do this all the time. They, they, they'll say things like you're working with a six-year-old and you'll say something like, you know what? I bet you cannot put away the toys in under... 15 seconds. I bet you anything that you're not that fast. Well, that's a strategic move. <laughs> you're playing a mind game. Uh, it's not unethical. It's, you know, it's just what people do. <laughs> it, you know, if you ask Johnny to put away the toys in 15 seconds, he'll be like, no, you can't make me. But if you say, I bet you anything, you're not fast enough to do it in 15 seconds. Then Johnny has, is competing against you. Um, and he'll want to do it just to spite you. And that's, you know, essentially what these sort of therapies do. Now, strategic and structural Ericksonian brief therapies, uh, this is only a small part of that. You can be that kind of therapist and not ever do this sort of stuff. There's a whole slew of different things that they would do. Essentially, they, th- th- with those therapies, they're looking for brief ways of either destabling a system so that they can adopt a new stable homeostasis that's more functional or they're trying to get people to see their reality for what it is by um, getting them out of their normal rut so that they stop seeing um, everything in the exact same way. Um, like another, another strategic technique might be, okay, this week, as soon as you get into a fight, I want you to, have you ever fought in the garage? And they're like, no, we've, we're not usually in the garage. Okay, so when you're fighting, I want you to go into the garage and do it there. Um, so you, the only place you can fight, you can fight all you want, but the only place you can fight is in the garage. And then the family's like, huh, okay. So then the next fight comes up, they go into the garage, and suddenly it's like it just feels different because it's not the same. And suddenly the two of them, you know, the two people fighting are looking at each other like, this is kind of weird. Like, what are we doing? <laughs> it gives this chance for a system to kind of see itself because people get into these habits and they just do the same thing over and over and over again. And uh, it's hard for systems to get out of that homeostasis. So, um, so you go, you know, if, if this is the sort of therapist you want to be, study it, find a mentor who does this sort of thing um, because they're not very frequent. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it certainly is a is a direction to go in. I'll tell you this: the literature on it, especially the old literature from the '60s, '70s, and '80s and '90s, is completely propagandized by um, positive stories about these things always working. You know, Jay Haley, Milton Erickson, um, all those people will uh, purport that it always worked, and I cured people in five minutes, and it's like. Um, 
No, I guarantee you that although those stories might be true, there's probably countless other clients that were not actually helped um, or you didn't do a follow-up with them to actually see if you actually helped them. So, you know, if things were that easy, um, then we'd all be doing that. All right. So let's go on to another email. All right. This next email is from an anonymous patron. They write, if you have two people who both have relational trauma and insecure attachment and they're in a relationship, can they develop secure attachment and heal their relational trauma through couple therapy alone without doing individual therapy? I'm asking because at one point you said on the podcast that in individual therapy, the client attaches to the therapist and that attachment relationship will hopefully help the client develop secure attachment. But in couple therapy, the therapist helps the clients attach to each other so they don't need to attach to the therapist. Does this mean couple therapy can replace individual therapy? Assuming the main issue is relational trauma and attachment insecurity, nothing else. Obviously, if someone has PTSD, uh, that that probably can't be treated in couple therapy. End of email. Yeah, so it's complicated. It depends on the therapist's um, approach. But again, the as you say, the goal of therapy for insecurely attached people is to have them be securely attached, have, to have them be a secure, to have, to help have them exhibit secure attachment style, which means that they trust others and they like themselves sufficiently. And that is facilitated through secure attachments. Now, in individual therapy, you really don't have much of a choice. You have to utilize the individual relationship between the therapist and the client to facilitate a secure attachment so that that client can repair their attachment injuries and then generalize that, uh, that learning of attachment to other relationships. Um, you, can just, you can try to engineer secure attachments in their personal life, which is something that I try to do. But it's so much easier to engineer that between the client and the therapist because you're in control of half of that equation. In, it, with couple therapy, you can do either or both. So you can engineer the secure attachment between the couple, and therefore you don't need to have a secure attachment between therapist and client. But you can also do that. And for some people, their uh, insecure attachment is so severe that you actually need to start with the secure attachment between you and each individual person in the couple. I think there's this misconception that somehow like couple therapy is not as serious or the, the counter-transference or transference issues aren't the same. Um, they, can, they can be, and they often are, particularly with the sort of couple therapy that me and uh, my supervisees do, which is more long-term. And uh, so what I would, what I do is, and what I love about couple therapy is that I try to develop a secure attachment with, with the clients uh, between, you know, me and each of them and me as, as them as a couple too. It's, it's not just, you know, me and the husband, me and the wife, but it's me. I'm, I have a secure attachment with that, with their relationship too, which is something that is more symbolic in nature. So I not only facilitate that so I can repair their attachment injuries, but I also try to engineer their relationship so that they're actually meeting each other, each other's attachment needs so that they can be each other's reparative relationship for the traumas that they've been through, some of which have been caused by the other person uh, if they've been together long enough. So, so it's all the above. And 
then you say, you know, obviously if someone has PTSD, that probably can't be treated in couple therapy. It can. I've, I've treated PTSD in couple therapy before. Uh, this notion that somehow, you know, there are certain things that they have to be individual therapy. Why? Why can't a, now, it just depends on what people are going for. P, again, a lot of people, and I guess some couple therapists operate this way, where couple therapy is this sort of back and forth exchange, equal time for each person. And if you spend, say, 45 minutes on one person's individual issues, it's not, you know, technically couple therapy. Well, that's not true. Uh, it depends on your style. And for true marriage and family therapists like myself, uh, we treat systems and we treat, we don't just treat individuals. Even when we're seeing the individual, we're thinking about them in, in the context of their relationships and their culture. And so uh, when we're treating a couple, um, we can absolutely treat uh, one, of the, one of the people for a time. Now, it's not always what I do. I, I, about half my clients are individuals anyway, because that's what they want and it works fine. But when I'm seeing a couple and I'm like, oh, I think you have PTSD. Uh, would you like treatment for that? I can treat you for that. Uh, you can also go to an individual therapist if you want. What do you want to do? Here's the pros, here's the cons. And if they choose to work with me, then I say, okay, spouse, you're going to have to sit there uh, or maybe not even come to some of the sessions while we do that PTSD work. And I encourage the spouse to be there, actually, because what can happen is the spouse can learn so much about their, uh, their spouse's condition and to have compassion for that person. You know, we, in the Western world, we tend to, we, you know, physicians, we want to isolate and treat. And I guess that's fine with cancer or something or a broken arm. You know, we don't want the entire family in there as you're trying to uh, do surgery. But... In some ways, it's it's a very Northwestern European way of looking at things where everything's individual-based and we like things to be clean and and not messy. Well, the reality is, is people's lives are, are inherently, quote-unquote, messy. They're inherently connected and relational. And if we're going to help someone with their mental condition, then you really, you have to, at least in theory or at least in the way you talk about things, you have to involve the system that they're operating in. If someone is suffering from PTSD, then their family, their spouses, their friends, their kids, their parents are also affected by that disorder, by that condition, and will also benefit as that person gets uh, healed. And what a wonderful thing to have happen uh, for the family to, or the spouse to be there, to be a supportive person, to learn more, to learn how to be a support to that person. You know, with depression, for example, what a wonderful thing to do to bring the couple in and to have the non-depressed spouse witness the reality of their spouse's depression. If you isolate, that spouse is left out. They never really get a chance to uh, benefit from that witnessing. Uh, you can engineer relational uh, curative moments where the non-depressed spouse can really say, I'm, I'm so sorry you're going through this and I, I never really understood how horrible it was for you until I watched you and your therapist talk about this. It's uh, I'm, I, I never knew, and I now kind of really get an idea of what this is like. So you absolutely can treat PTSD, and I have in a, the couple or family format. Uh, 
with kids. If you have a seven-year-old child with PTSD, I absolutely will invite the parents into those sessions. Now, I'm in the minority. The vast majority of people in my profession tend to um, prefer and even claim that it's ethical treatment to isolate. And certainly you can do that, and certainly I have, but doesn't mean that you can't involve the system. And it, it it's bothersome to me that we don't have that as an option. And a lot of people will say, well, well, it's not good treatment. But in my estimation, I'm going to blast everybody a little bit. And I think it's because they're afraid. They're, it's, it's way more um, scary to have multiple people in the office. It's so much easier and cleaner to have just one person in session because it's much easier to control the session when you have just one person in your office. Now, sometimes you want to use that to your advantage, but uh, to be afraid of couples and families in your office, I don't think is a good enough reason to deny the benefit of that mode. You go on to say, also, is it weird to start couple therapy at the beginning of a relationship? Most people wait until problems arise, but I want a prophylactic treatment for the inevitable future problems. No, it's not weird. I've had couples come to me uh, for this. Uh, they will say, you know, we're, we're falling in love and we don't really have any big problems. You know, we haven't cheated on each other and we don't even live together yet, but we want to come into couple therapy because uh, we value therapy and uh, we just really want to get this going on the right foot. What a wonderful thing, because all couples have conflict. All couples have problems with communication. All couples will hurt each other uh, with their attachment um, needs. All couples will injure each other's attachment needs. And uh, all couples, therefore, can benefit from a couple therapy. And what a wonderful thing. Uh, the, the couples that I've done that with are some of the most healthiest, uh, most well-adjusted, long-lasting, in-love couples I've ever worked with. And the other thing that I want to point out is that uh, for me and the people I supervise, couple therapy lasts just as long as individual therapy. In some ways, it lasts longer. Once a couple really locks in to the benefits of couple therapy, it's it, it, it's sort of a no-brainer that it's like, well, we're at least going to come back once a month for the rest of our lives together <laughs> because uh, what a wonderful way for us to come together, have that special time, to have that person help us to uh, sift through our schemas and our misunderstandings and our distortions about each other, facilitate that attachment, love, and need-based talk between the two of us. Um, what a wonderful opportunity. You know, it's sort of like another form of date night, if you want to think about it that way. I've had couples that will do that. They will, they'll, you know, they come at the same time, you know, we schedule once a month and they come, say, Mondays at six, and then they come to therapy, they, right afterwards, they go to dinner, um, you know, they have sex, and, and they, you know, they're set for the week. And so, absolutely, um, prophylactic uh, couple therapy is, is great. Well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle, where I answered all of your emails or some of your emails, and you patrons listened. Thanks for being a patron so much. Uh, just a few little things uh, that I want to give a shout-out for to do is to please review us on iTunes. I'm trying to push people to review us there because 
Um, I don't know if we have the amount of iTunes reviews that we should have. <laughs> so, and I've, I've heard it's an important thing. Plus, it's always just great to hear your thoughts. Uh, if you haven't already, join us on Facebook and Instagram. The main way that I have found that listeners like to be communicated to sort of as an instant thing is through f- the, our Facebook page. Uh, we both have our own Facebook page and we have a fan page. The fan page I don't go to, and that's run by listeners. And the uh, our Facebook page is run by me and Stacy. And so if, if I have an announcement like, we're going to be on YouTube Live soon – uh, then I will post that on Facebook. The other thing is, is if you haven't been joining us on YouTube Live, um, please do. Uh, we do every Thursday at 2 o'clock Seattle time, and I just do Q&A, and you can type in your questions, and I'll answer them, or you can just uh, lurk and watch other people ask questions. You can also you know, chat with other people if you want to, but a lot of people, they just watch it. Or you can watch the old uh, live chats that I, I usually leave them up for a little bit. So... Um, uh, if you're if you're just one of those people that just listens on Patreon or just listens on your phone, know that there's a lot of other content. And I never post those episodes, um, you know, the YouTube live things on the podcast on this feed. So um, it's sort of like you know rare content. Um, also, you know, we're starting. You know, people are on Discord, and if you don't know how to do that, like. Uh, let me know, email me, and I'll, I'll send you the link. And then it's just basically this forum where all of the listeners can communicate with each other. It's similar to the fan page, but it's more dynamic. Discord is more dynamic. And if you use Discord, then you know how it works. But it's basically just like a like a chat program, and it's really fun. And if you're a therapist, you can. there's a channel there where you can post, you can you know promo your, um, your practice. And I was thinking Discord would be kind of fun to make it a community uh, where it's more alive because um, people aren't really there when I'm not there. And so I, I kind of want to create that culture there because it seems like it'd be kind of fun. Uh, all right. Well, that does it for that episode. And please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do. Mm-hmm.